gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. You know all that stuff. Uh, give reviews, say nice things, check us out, become a member of the Dispatch, uh, be kind to your mother and small animals. So, um, very excited about today's guest, who I had to um, ditch at the last minute a couple, uh, like two weeks ago, because of a scheduling conflict on my end, and he's been gracious enough to come back from the West Coast, so it's still early for him. Um, we have uh, Michael Schellenberger, who is uh, the author of several books and has interesting things to say on a whole wide range of things. But his latest book has really caused a stir. It's San Francisco, uh, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. So we're going to talk about that for a bit and maybe some other things as well. Michael, welcome to The Remnant. Hey, thanks for having me, John. A pleasure. So... Um, just to level set for people, um, you're not historically known as as a resident of the right wing tribes, right? I mean, you, some, some people have accused you of being on a journey, but we can get into that if you want. But like you're an environment by, by vocation, you're an environmental reporter, right? That was where you sort of got into a lot of this stuff. Yeah, environmental activist, journalist, but I also worked on what you might call social justice, criminal justice issues in the late 1990s, including for George Soros. Okay, so um, now that the, now all the appropriate listeners can put on their various uh, tinfoil hats as they interpret the rest of the conversation, uh, the just the mentioning of George Soros sends some people um, crazy, but... Um, so the uh, it's not possible you also work for the Cokes because that would really the cognitive dissonance that would cause would really be wonderful. <laughs> but um, no, I don't. And I don't take I don't take money from any industry or anybody with any interest in my work. OK, um, so uh, you're rather than me summarizing what your book is about. Why don't you tell people what the, the thesis of the book is and uh, we'll take it from there. Sure. So San Francisco is about the crisis facing America's uh, cities, in particular, America's progressive West Coast cities. But many of the things I'm describing are now increasingly seen around the country, Denver, Chicago, New York, Philly. Uh, we're dealing with a historic drug crisis, really the likes of which we've never seen before um, anywhere in the world. And also, um, uh, rising homicide and crime. So the book argues that this is a result of, to a large extent, policies, including progressive and liberal policies, including some that I've advocated in the past and have had to rethink. And that what's at bottom is a progressive ideology of victim, victimhood and also of what you might call woke religion. So it's really and I should say it's the second in a trilogy about civilization and the forces that are undermining our civilization. And my last book was Apocalypse Never, which is about energy and the environment. Um, and then I'll continue on this on my third book. Well, I just so you know, I took the title Suicide of the West from you, so you can't use it um, for your <laughs> to end up your trilogy. Um, so I, I tell you, like, I, I think the book is great. Um, I've been. Uh, full disclosure, I've just been dipping in and out of it in various parts um, because things have been kind of crazy on my end. Um, but I, I, it's one of these books that I actually plan on finishing cover to cover. Um, as a 
someone who grew up in the 1990s as a neocon, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of the thesis. Um, um, but what's interesting, one of the things that's sort of interesting to me is that, um, have you ever read the, the, the Tom Wolf essay, the great relearning? Uh, Oh gosh, I don't know if I've read that. I, I thought you were going to ask me if I read the, the Mau Mau and the Flatcatchers, which of no, course no, I read. That, I seriously highly recommend you read okay. it. I can, I'll send you a copy of it. It's um, great. And it's actually centered. It, it opens about San Francisco and, and part of Wolf's thesis. I mean, my listeners are sick of hearing about it, but you know, part of my thesis is that uh, sometimes societies screw up and they forget a whole bunch of like core things that they need to know that make civilization possible. Right. sort of society gets paved over by society. The, all the Chesterton fences get knocked down because nobody even knows why they were there. And, and then you get problems like this. And, and what's, what's sort of weird to me in, in, in reading the book is how much deja vu I have. I mean, I, I know I checked to see you, you read madness in the streets by, you know, um, was it rail Isaac? And I can't remember the other author, but which I devoured in, in the nineties when, you know, it was a big deal. Um, there's a, a lot of Myron Magnet madness in the streets, um, and it seems to me that like this, you have you give off the 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 distinct odor, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, of a liberal being mugged by reality in real time, um, which is the old definition of a of a neoconservative. Um, what do you? Some people make that a compliment, which is the way I would make it, but some people make it a, a criticism. How do you respond to that sort of claim or charge or allegation? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to it. I think the thing that I, I'm not crazy about is that I'm still very aware of my of what you might call my my racial and class privilege. I live in the Berkeley Hills. I'm not, you know, I've had people sort of suggest that somehow I was personally affected in some way. I haven't been. You know, I live a very comfortable life in the Berkeley Hills. Um, we're not affected by crime, drugs, and homelessness directly. I did have a retail office space in downtown Berkeley that I gave up at the end of last year. But mostly my concern has been around, I mean, this is one of the ironies is that I, I remain concerned disproportionately with the poor, you know, with people of color, with people in high crime neighborhoods. Those are the people. And we now see that violence is now increasingly concentrated, even more so than it was in the 1990s. There's been recent research showing the increasing concentration of homicides in violent neighborhoods. So my concern in some ways remains what you might call liberal in the sense that I, I do think that um, we should have greater concern for the most vulnerable members of society. And those are the ones who suffer the most from crime. You know, I mean, there's a sort of I have a bunch of progressive and liberal friends who we're all becoming increasingly obsessed with crime. And we kind of look at each other being like, how did crime ever become like a conservative issue? You know, like, why? Why is this like? The, why is this viewed as a right wing thing being concerned? You know, I mean, the, you know, African-Americans are killed at a rate of, you know, eight times, seven to eight times more than white Americans. So if you're concerned about if you're concerned about black lives, you should be really concerned about homicides and about homicides that are increasing. And in particular, given that 30 times more African-Americans are killed by civilians than by police, you should be particularly concerned by civilian homicide rather than police homicide. Yeah, I mean, it's um, and the way I've been putting it for Wano is that crime is the ultimate regressive tax on poor people, you know, because not only are they disproportionately the victims of crime, 
but the societal responses to crime are born disproportionately by poor people. You know, the places that, you know, when, when a CVS says it's no longer going to stay open, um, if you're an old black lady, you know, and now you have to walk 10 more blocks to get to get your pick up your prescriptions. That's just wildly more onerous than if you're, you know, uh, an upscale person who has a car or whatever, who CVS, first of all, isn't closing in the first place. And um, the prices that are the costs that are put into uh, that are conveyed in prices uh, by, by price increases to cover the costs of shoplifting and security and all that kind of stuff. Again, disproportionately going to be covered by care, born by poor people. And it has always sort of fascinated me how the left has tried to make concern about quality of life, crime issues. I grew up in New York City in the 70s. Um, somehow this crazy right wing thing. And um, there's nothing in liberal theory, proper liberal theory that supports that. I mean, it's just it's it's this weird malfunction in the way that they conceive of how do you talk about these things yeah for sure i mean i sort of say the exact same thing you were saying you were talking about tom wolf writing about how people forget that you need these institutions of civilization whether it's the police or or probation or jails or psychiatric hospitals or homeless shelters these things are necessary to have a safe and livable society i always sort of point out you know if you want uh, Rousseau, you got to have Hobbes and Locke. I mean, <laughs> you can't just skip to you can't skip past those. I I think what's interesting, you know, it's 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 the forgetting, but I think there's just this there's just an anti system ideology that's behind the progressive demand to empty the jails and prisons and shut down the psychiatric hospitals. And I just kept seeing it again and again. I mean, I know you were saying you were going to talk about um, some of the energy and environmental issues. I mean, I'm reading a, when I was reading about the closure of psychiatric hospitals in this kind of moral panic and a kind of mania by progressives and liberals, not just the radical left, by the way, but also just mainstream Kennedy era liberals in the 60s. I was so struck by how similar it seemed to the 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 moral panic around shutting down nuclear power plants. You know, it was like it was like they had to shut, you know, we got to shut these nuclear power plants down. You know, and like we have to shut down these psychiatric hospitals right away. It's kind of like, well, in both cases, you could just try to improve their operation. You, know, you could try to make them better. That's certainly in the liberal toolkit is to try to make things better, ameliorate the situation. But no, it had to be tearing it down. And of course, we just saw the exact same thing over the last two years to the point where, you know, we let out, you know, indiscriminately huge numbers of people, you know, out of jails and prisons, shutting down jails and prisons. The goal being to shut those institutions down rather than to achieve some balance between public safety and social justice. So there's something very emotional there. There's something very ideological there. Obviously, the ideological part is this idea that these institutions are, that the system is evil, that a priori you start with the idea that the system is evil. So I think though that for, that's the radical left. I think then for more kind of, you know, ordinary FDR, JFK liberals, it's more in the realm of, yeah, they just forget why you need those things. And they're more likely to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of swung by the woo woo view that, that somehow we can all just hold hands and wish crime away. So let me push back on that a little bit. I mean, obviously I'm sympathetic to parts of it, but, um, uh, 
it seems to me that there, I mean, this is something I've been thinking a bunch about because I've been so gobsmacked by how the Biden administration has screwed up a bunch of things with COVID in schools and you know, not just the Biden, Democrats generally. And um, part of my theory, which is only a partial theory, is that you know, the Democrats historically for over a century have been the party of government, but there's a difference between being a party, the party of government and essentially the party of government workers and government uh, contractors, as it were. Um, and you end up getting this sort of Jonathan Rauschy demosclerosis kind of problem where uh, the elected officials of the party of government don't have the courage or the wherewithal to gainsay or be skeptical of the government experts, right? They give them deference. It's like, you know, we cannot, we cannot declare war on another branch of our own aristocracy kind of thing. And so the teachers unions don't get pushed back. The, uh, the, me the, the sort of public health officials don't get pushed back. And the, the, the reason why I, I bring this up is that, I agree with you that there is an element of the of sort of 60s style anarchism to um, some of these arguments. But even the radical left is not anti-government per se. It is not anti-system per se. I mean, they they want lots more government spending. And they if you try to cut the lavish benefits in San Francisco for homeless programs, you know, the those same leftists will be furious so it's it, it just strikes me as like it's a little unfair to my anarcho-capitalist friends to call it sort of a purely an anti-system sort of approach it's that they just want the system isn't it more like they just think the system should work differently yeah i think that's right yeah no for sure i mean so one thing is sort of yeah why are uh you know, progressives who claim to be, you know, for an expanded role of government, for a reduced role for government when it comes to things like policing, prisons, nuclear power, psychiatric hospitals, and homeless shelters. You know, some of these things have to be pulled apart a bit. I mean, um, I mean, but it's interesting. Like, so for example, I'm writing a piece right now. They've, a bunch of liberal cities, including San Francisco and LA, have done these big subcontracts to what is basically a janitorial service called Urban Alchemy, which is like 90% black ex-cons, many of whom were in prison for very serious crimes, who are basically going around and cleaning up the streets in San Francisco after, you know, open air drug scenes, um, you know, people so-called homeless after drug addicts have been partying all night on the sidewalks. These, these ex-cons go and clean up after them as janitors. But they're also doing sort of what we call move-alongs, which is when the police ask you to move along off the sidewalk. And I was asking the founder of it, I said, you guys are sort of providing security. And she goes, oh, no, no, not that, you know, because <laughs> they're under attack from the radical left. And the radical left is attacking these guys because they're bringing some amount of order to the streets. And so you kind of go, well, is the progressive, is the radical left concern with, you know, basically this light security janitorial service? Is it because they are against order? Are they against cleanliness? Or is it that they just see everybody on the street as victims? And I have to say, I think it's more the latter. I mean, I think they'll sacrifice, they're very quick to sacrifice public order and cleanliness 
on behalf of victims, but they start from the idea that if you're on the street smoking meth and smoking fentanyl or shooting heroin on the sidewalk, a priori you're a victim and only things should be given to you and nothing demanded. So I do think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, like why why are they deferential to the teachers union, but just view police unions as, you know, Satan incarnate? Um, clearly it has something to do with a view of, you know, the repressive role of the state, the fact that the police officers are more often arresting uh, people they consider to be victims. Um, I have a bunch of people that have asked me this question. Why is it that progressives are totally fine with these super harsh mandatory vaccinations, but they won't mandate drug rehab to addicts who are clearly endangering their own lives, often you know, dying 100,000 deaths last year from drug overdoses, and I, again, I think it has to do with the victim category, with actually the people that are, um, the, the addicts are in a victim category in ways that when you kind of go, we all have to be vaccinated, um, you're not, that's not, that's not victim ideology. So I do think a lot of it just comes back to that. So let's, um, for the benefit of, of listeners, because, and this is entirely my fault, we started with a very high level of abstraction. Um, why don't you just sort of run through you know, sort of the elevator pitch about how bad homelessness and 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 social order problems, quality of life problems have gotten in San Francisco. Um, just so the listener knows, sort of where you're coming from on this. Well, sure. Yeah, I mean, so San Francisco has always had an open drug culture, a street drug culture. It's been misnamed, quote unquote, homelessness. Homelessness, as I describe in San Francisco, is a is a propaganda word. It was literally deliberately chosen to conflate groups of people who should not be combined, namely uh, addicts living on the street, mentally ill people that are not getting the treatment they need, and then the proverbial mother escaping an abusive husband with her two kids. We do a really good job taking care of the mother with the two kids who has no underlying addiction or mental illness problem. And so it was really an effort to sort of mislead people into thinking that the under that really this is just about economic destitution, that really the people on the street are no different from the Jode family from Grapes of Wrath. They're just all there for e- strictly economic reasons. And it just comes up time and time again. And it really is asking us to just ignore our eyes and our conversations with the people on the street, many of whom are in various states of psychosis, either from meth or untreated mental illness or both, um, or are living on the street because their addiction led them to quit their jobs, stop paying rent, move in with friends and family, steal from friends and family, get evicted from friends and family, and live in a tent on the street. Ultimately, where I came to, because there's all this evidence, there's a big debate around, is there a magnet effect? Is San Francisco attracting people with its generous housing and services? Uh, there's no question that San Francisco has more generous cash welfare, for example, than any other city I've been able, we've been able to find, any other major city. But it's also just, you have people living in tents on the sidewalk because you allow it. If you were just to be like, no, you're all going to jail, then you would not have all those people on the street, which is what more conservative towns like Fresno and others do. So it's th- this idea that we're sort of helpless to people living on the sidewalks just ignores the fact that there's a, there's always been advocacy in San Francisco and other cities to allow people to sleep on the street, to do public camping, but also public, which entails public drug use, public defecation, sometimes public sex. I tried to figure out when do the tents show up? 
you know, there's a debate around it, but basically around the Occupy movement where Occupy activists are in tents and sleeping in front of City Hall. Um, it's, you know, not just New York, the Occupy movement, which is Occupy Wall Street, of course, really was in a bunch of cities. A lot of those activists then give the tents to people living on the streets, but also the people on the streets were sort of inspired by that and felt like, okay, I, sh- I should be able to do that too. And then the defense of that by activists. But the basic picture is if you drive into San Francisco today, you will just see right away coming off the highway into the city, many, many tents open what they call they call them homeless encampments, which makes it sounds like people are singing Kumbaya and roasting marshmallows. But it's these are very dangerous, uh, more dangerous than ever places. Women are raped. Um, there's, you know, a, a sex work going on every, you know, basically everybody is, is, is an, is a serious late stage addict or suffering untreated mental illness. Like I have not been able to find anybody who's like, yeah, that guy is completely fine. You know, he's just down on his luck, lost his job and is here to save money. There's, that's not where you would go. There's a million other places you would go if you wanted that. And then, um, that's San Francisco and it's such a small city geographically it's, and it's so progressive that these open air drug scenes, which is the right term for them are really now everywhere. They're no longer contained in the traditionally black, poor, low income, black downtown neighborhood called the Tenderloin, but really the worst, I mean, the city where this is most out of control is Los Angeles. It used to be contained in a neighborhood called Skid Row. Skid Row has gone just it's just a bonkers place to visit. I mean, the encampments now, that's not just tents, it's large structures. It's almost like shanties or, or like in Brazil, favelas, big structures that have been allowed to exist. And it's not just in Skid Row. It's now in some swanky neighborhoods, including Venice Beach. It was in Echo Park, Echo Park Lake. And and yeah, and you do see it. You see it in places like Philadelphia and the Kensington neighborhood. I even saw a, a small open air drug scene in Dupont Circle in Washington D.C. when I was there late last year. So these are open. And Boston just the the mayor just sh- shut down an open drug scene at Mass Massachusetts Avenue and Cass Avenue. So that's basically the picture of it. Um, you know, there's other things going on. So you see there's been a rise in homicides, which is really a completely different phenomenon. You've also just seen a rise in various other kinds of crimes, including uh, smash and grabs, organized uh, uh, flash mob, um, uh, you know, crimes in shopping malls, but just a laxening of law enforcement and prosecution resulting in just a significant amount more crime in San Francisco and other progressive cities. Yeah, so um, that's helpful. And um, so I was reading, you know, the, the New York Times had a fairly hostile review. And um, to me, it was sort of kind of funny. There was one line where uh, this reporter who allegedly has been living in a camp in Oakland or something says, you know, Schoenberger says that, you know, mental health and, and addiction issues define the homeless or something like that. And I'm not sure if he was characterizing your position correctly or not, but it doesn't matter. My point is, is that he says in my encampment, there are, it's true. There are many, many people who are addicted and there are uh, some people who have severe mental health issues, but there's also like this other guy. And like, I'm totally fine with believing that, you know, the case that you made at the, when you were reviewing this stuff, that 
you can stipulate that there are a handful of down on their luck UPS workers or whatever in these camps that aren't mentally diseased, you know, don't have mental illness and aren't don't have addiction issues. That's not a defense of the camps, right? I mean, it's 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 it or the encampments or whatever we're going to call them. Um, if you're going to you, you can't take it's sort of like in the 1980s, the mainstream media would desperately find the one like completely sympathetic homeless whole family and say this is the face of homelessness and then anybody who lived in new york city or visited san francisco or any of these kinds of places would say you know that's that's really not the face of homelessness i don't see that every day the thing i see every day are the dudes you know dropping a deuce in the street and you know and punching people in the face and and um that's a different look and um and so you can be you know i i think the way put it earlier um is is right is that we've taken different kinds of vagrants homeless people drug addicts and we put them under this umbrella term to bury these distinctions rather than you know highlight these distinctions because i think the distinctions matter and i think everybody i know left right and center thinks that like there's some role for the state to help people who through no fault of their own fall through the cracks and aren't there because they're addicts or um because they're criminals um or because you know or even because if they're mentally ill you know we should do something about them but letting them stay on the street is not it and um but i do, I do have this sort of just one more level setting question before we get back into this um so again i grew up in new york in the 70s and 80s um and then i saw even though i lived in dc the sort of Giuliani revolution in New York, the sort of broken windows revolution in New York. And it never really fixed the homeless stuff, but it did fix the other crime things remarkably. And, and then I remember visiting San Francisco for the first time. Um, and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is what New York would be like if they didn't have the 1990s, uh, you know, transformations. So, I mean, San Francisco has always had, a weird kind of culture. My dad always blamed on the fact that the hobos riding the rails, the rails ended in all the Vancouver, San Francisco, Seattle. And so there was always this sort of weird Portland, these weird sort of skeevy subculture drifter vagrant kind of things there. Um, is there a, you know, what specifically policy wise, what has made what was sort of obvious to me, like not a great situation in terms of homeless people and crazy people on the street, um, in the late nineties, what has made it so much worse 20 years later? I mean, is there, or is it just the same problem metastasizing? Yeah. Well, let me, let me address that by first just saying, you know, I think the thing you have to, like one thing people go, well, what's the difference between New York and San Francisco? Well, New York has built sufficient homeless shelters for its population. One of the things I'm most proud of in San Francisco is I basically figured out through a significant amount of investigative research that San Francisco's homeless advocates have opposed building sufficient homeless shelters out of the idea that everybody deserves their own apartment unit. In other words, by shelters, we're referring to these kind of congregate shelters. When you interview people, I mean, almost everybody you interview that's on the street or even in a, shel in a shelter, they all want their own room. I mean, every, it's like one of the first things they want. But in the Netherlands, which I hold up as a really good example of how to deal with this problem, 
housing is a reward for making progress towards abstinence or psychiatric progress or some other steps towards your personal improvement. It's not just given away as an entitlement, which is what the progressives in San Francisco has demanded. So as a result, New York houses, sorry, New York shelters, 95% of its homeless, San Francisco shelters just a third. And so to some extent, you just have to require it, but also you just have to build sufficient shelters. Now, that may not be totally possible in San Francisco because of the geographic area, which is part of the reason I argue for a statewide approach, which will allow for homeless to be uh, to go to other parts of the state. But nonetheless, I just want to clarify that, that, you know, and and again, to the extent to which there's people who are just down on their luck, we do a very good job already taking care of those people. That's just not the issues that our cities are dealing with. We're dealing with open drug scenes. There's a I, early in my research, I discovered a paper called Open Drug Scenes. Uh, lessons from five European cities and reading it was like, you know, it feels like the scales falling from my eyes. And it was like, oh man, I was duped. Like, like the Europeans figured out that this was about congregations of drug addicts and drug dealers, that this wasn't about this mythology of couldn't afford the rent. And so I decided to pitch a tent on the sidewalk. So then the question is, yeah, so where does it come from? I mean, for sure, you know, I, I mentioned before, homelessness is a propaganda word. You know, you can actually, it really gets Taken, it really gets taken off in the 1980s by, by progressive activists to make the case for more subsidized, more public housing. Though you can trace the word back to the 20s in the academic literature. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there's sort of a, there's definitely a hobo culture. There's a sort of a romantic, there's sort of a romantic hobo culture, um, particularly around, you know, riding the rails and, and uh, rough sleeping. These are sort of the romantic words that are used for that life. And, you know, I think back in the 20s and 30s, there was a kind of, there w- it was a bit more romantic. It was a bit more out in nature. It wasn't everybody sitting in the cities just using drugs all day. There was more movement. The word transient is a word that is often used, used in Christian pejoratively. But yeah, for sure. There was just much more open and acceptance of that in the Bay Area. And I think there's sort of cultural libertarian reasons for that. There's also ideological reasons for it. One of the things I describe in San Francisco is how do you go from a left where, you know, Marx and Engels referred to homeless people as the lumpen proletariat. Marx and Engels really didn't have any time for homeless people. They certainly didn't see them as the revolutionary class that was reserved for for sort of upright, morally, you know, um, straight factory workers, you know, those were, that was revolutionary class. The, the homeless and the lumpen proletariat only became viewed as a kind of political class, um, in the United States in the early 20th century. And it was really the IWW, the International Workers of the World, which was an explicitly, um, post-Marxist anarchist movement that sought to organize the hobos and make the lumpen proletariat part of this movement. And I, I sort of point out in San Francisco that, you know, everybody at that time, including Lenin in Russia, is dealing with the problem that they just don't have enough factory workers to to be a revolutionary class. Um, you know, I think factory workers, the share of the working population that were factory workers was like the highest in Britain at like 30 percent, which, of course, Marx was, you know, um, was was looking at but really the share of the of the workforce that was factory workers then declined from there i think it's now peaked around 15 percent in other developing countries so one of the problems that the radical left had right away was how do you expand the revolutionary class and so that starts to occur 
with the Hobos, um, uh, with IWW, which was very, very strong in the San Francisco Bay Area in the early part of the 20th century. And so there was always, there's sort of, I think there's always two things to keep in mind. I mean, there's sort of a radical left view that you need to organize all of the oppressed under a single category to overthrow the system or change the system. But then there's just a kind of like, hey man, don't be so uptight kind of culture in San Francisco, which is super strong in the 60s, you know, and it's like smoking marijuana. If you're smoking marijuana in Golden Gate Park in the 60s, who are you to say that some poor African-American guy can't shoot heroin on the corner? Like that would be racist. That would be discriminatory. If you can smoke marijuana in Golden Gate Park, then somebody should be able to shoot heroin on the street corner. And who are you to say they're not? I mean, and then you kind of get the homeless population in the 1980s, these are, you know, Vietnam vets and these are people that are, you know, um, uh, you know, people of color and poor people. And so there's definitely a plays into a kind of guilt trip. You know, who are you who drinks fancy martinis and smokes marijuana and does some blow on the weekend, um, who, which we now know was a, a drug that was very prevalent, including among progressive lawmakers, including the you know city council and the mayors in the 70s and 80s. Um, there was some sense in which that was just wrong to not allow people to use drugs and camp publicly. I mean, who are you to, who are you to denounce that? So what do you make? So one of the, one of the better, and I say one of the better because it's one of the ones I subscribe to, to one extent or another conservative explanations for homelessness. Um, and, you know, and crime too, but I mean, but homelessness is sort of the, the perfect, um, example of it is the breakdown in in community and the lack of social capital like i often will tell people um i've talked about this on the podcast a bunch of times it's like when people say oh you have to be careful because you could be homeless tomorrow and as a matter of fact i couldn't be i mean i mean yeah technically i'm sure we could come up with some sort of trading places scenario where you made me homeless tomorrow but like i have a sufficient number of friends and family and other forms of social capital, never mind financial capital, that um, I could stay in my house for a while before it got repossessed. And even if I couldn't stay in my house, there are couches and extra bedrooms for me for months um, because I can call upon friends and family to to help me out. And um, the people who can't do that, who do not have the a wealth of social capital, never mind actual capital can't and so the line between them being having a home and not having a home is is much smaller the same thing with the mental health stuff we had an expert about homelessness on here a while ago you know and he, he makes a perfectly valid point that it used to be a lot of people with mental health problems if they didn't go to a mental health institution um they lived in a you know in a in you know in the basement or in the attic or in a shed in the backyard and their families took care of them out of familial obligation that so i mean that seems to me the sort of decline of those community and familial norms about taking care of your own um um seems to be at least a part of the story you know do you agree with that yeah i do um and in fact the three i i note early in san francisco that there were I mean, one thing that alarmed me in my research is I discovered three excellent books from the early and mid-1990s by liberals, two of whom were uh, ran a homeless shelter in Washington, D.C. Um, it was called A Nation in Denial, 
And they, it was, book was widely reviewed in the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times. Another book was by Christopher Jenks, who's a famous Harvard sociologist. Um, he's actually still alive. I interviewed him. He's still um, alive? Christopher it, Jenks is still alive? Yeah. Yeah. I had no I idea. Him. I read that yeah, book. I, I did a lot of homelessness stuff at AI in the 90s. And so that was a great book. I mean, it was just, you just try to get the numbers right because it's very hard, you know, Um Anyway, go on. I'm sorry. So you talked to Christopher Jenks. Well, yeah. So so Christopher Jenks, and then there's a third book um, that was by an, a former HHS kind of mid-level manager. But all three books just explicitly said this is what we're, what we're calling homelessness is really misdescribing street addiction and me- untreated mental illness. The Nation in Denial book, which was by these two homeless shelter you know, managers, basically, they, I think they ran a homeless shelter in Washington, D.C., they said it's it's addiction and disaffiliation, which is, you know, I hate to use academic jargon like that, but that word is actually quite perfect. You know, the only um, other word you could use is sort of alienation from friends and family. But and it's really a, an extension of addiction. So so first of all, I totally agree. I mean, the evidence of weakening um the, the of weakening family ties is just overwhelming and weakening, you know, friendship ties just very strong. And it's a longstanding trend. It's been going on for, I mean, arguably hundreds of years, but certainly decades. But I do think that the role that addiction is playing in it in increasingly hard drugs, you know, I think it's important to remember, you know, so hoboism, you know, the older style homelessness was booze strictly alcohol. And then in the 80s, you see a big increase in homelessness from two populations, untreated, mental Ill, untreated mentally ill who had been uh, released from uh, psychiatric hospitals and also crack addicts, um, really under-discussed, I think. But so you see crack comes to, you know, cocaine, which had been a, a, a drug of the elites, comes down in price, you know, for poor people in the 80s. And now we're dealing with meth, you know, we're dealing with heroin became a lot cheaper. Now we have fentanyl, you know. And so what happens is, I mean, you, I don't know if you know, I have three friends. I don't know if you have friends from high school or whatever, but I had three friends from high school who became homeless addicts. Two are now dead. One is still alive and struggling, and it's very difficult. Um, but basically, all three were had their families cut off ties with them. And I know the families, and these were at least I know two of the three and they were good families. Like these weren't like, you know, abusive parents or whatever. They were just struggling. What do you do when you're, when your child is an addict and, you know, um, I'm very sensitive to like, I think this is, I want to speak directly to something that is in the New York times review. And also is, I think really salient to this issue of what's different between liberals like me. And I think conservative, the traditional conservative view, the New York times review um, grossly misrepresents the book and my view. One of the things it says, it says, Michael Schellenberger argues that homelessness is a choice. That is not what I argue, actually. I mean, I'm yeah, not arguing that so. there aren't I, some people on the choice. I hope yeah. that was clear. I thought the review just felt, yeah. you know, bad faith. Dishonest. Um, it was very bad read faith. Of the book. Yeah. Yeah. So they just, they were just looking to kind of get readers to dismiss me as some, you know, right-wing person. Um, the, the, there is an argument by some conservatives that people are on the street by choice. And I can see where you would conclude that because when you talk to people and when you offer them services, you know, over 95% of the people are on the street, if you go, Hey, do you want to come to a homeless shelter? They're like, no, I'll pass. I'd rather just be here in my tent for a variety of reasons, including they can use drugs openly there. Um, and you can't, not supposed to use them in the shelter. 
Um, that looks like choice, but I, I just kind of go, that's addiction. That's your addiction talking. I mean, you're just, a, you know, so I think it's, um, so addicts engage in some pretty terrible behaviors. And again, I want to be careful not to like dehumanize people, but I also think it's dehumanizing to suggest that the addict living on the street is the same person that they were when they were in high school or whatever. I mean, they cha- people change under addiction. It's a form of mental illness. And so you wouldn't sit there and go, yeah, that person having a manic or a, a delusional or a psychotic episode is the same person. Of course they're not. They're completely out of their gourds. So I think that, um, anyway, all of this is a way of saying the disaffiliation, the homelessness is often a result of somebody being evicted from their family or friend's couch or basement because their family and friends can't deal with them. And there, you know, and it's a real, it's really a painful struggle. And those, your listeners who have had friends and family suffering from addiction or untreated mental illness, by the way, will tell you just, it's painful. I mean, nobody wants to kick their child out to the street, but what do you do when they keep, you know, bringing people, you know, bringing other addicts home, partying and doing drugs in the house, not going to work, stealing from you? The response, quite understandably, from a lot of people is to kick them out. Now, it's interesting. I don't want to make a hard claim on this, but there is a fair amount of evidence that that's more common with white families than black families, that there's a fair number of black families that appear to have greater tolerance for family members who continue to struggle with addiction, letting them come home, stay in the house. Um, There's some empirical quantitative research on this, but I certainly found it with just the the qualitative research where there's just a little bit more tolerance. But, you know, look, white families, I mean, the classic thing, and again, I don't want to make strong claims on it, but often a dynamic where the dad is like, you got to kick him out. He's an addict. He's stealing from us. And the mom is like, no, let's try to kind of, you know, take care of him some more. And eventually the mom is like, yeah, it's just too out of control. He can't stay here anymore. And they kick him out. But it's... um Anyway, that I think the picture that people should have is really this picture of addiction and disaffiliation. That's the overwhelming thing that's going on here. It's not like I lost my job and I can't pay the rent and so I'm going to go live on the street. Yeah, I know. Look, I mean, and, and just I mean, there's no reason you should know this, but some listeners have heard me talk about this before. My brother who passed away a few years ago uh, struggled with addiction and I can attest like it is soul crushing. And mm, it is sorry it is yeah no no I'm I appreciate it. thank you but it's just just the process I mean it aged my father mm. decades dealing with you know these hard choices about what do you do you know each time lots of Lucy in the football kind of stuff yeah. and yeah. um and so I have nothing but sympathy for people with family members who have addiction but again you know sort of going to the point I was making earlier is that the the people who are part of what normal bourgeois families would call or middle class families would call the homelessness problem are disproportionately like you can even allow for some cast some victims of capitalism theories about who homeless people are the simple fact is the people defecating in the streets the people who terrifying little kids at playgrounds um these people are are suffering from mental illness or addiction or both. I mean, I grew up a few blocks from Larry, where Larry Hogue would push people out into traffic. Um, um, I have vivid memories every summer or every spring. Um, Bellevue would release 
hordes of, I mean, I don't mean to be dehumanizing, but it was like these, these Thorazine addicted people because now it was safe to like you like there was there was some mandate that you had to hospital you had to institutionalize them when it got too cold out but the second they the weather started turning warm you would just see all of a sudden this huge influx of these people coming down there was one lady who would you know sit in the doorway on broadway and 83rd street and yell the most disgusting things at people and there was other people like remember once my brother got his face all scratched up by someone who just took a disliking to him and he was like, you know, nine years old at the time. Um, the idea that somehow, I mean, this sort of gets, I mean, this gets to your stuff about crime more generally that somehow the whole system needs to be oriented towards. And again, I, I'm not trying to be pejorative either, but let's call them failures of the system, right? Because by definition, if you're committing crimes, if you're robbing people, if you're raping people, if you're murdering people, that's you're you're sort of a failure of the system. Same thing if you're a homeless drug addict or a homeless, homeless mentally ill person. And the idea that all of our societal sympathies should go to those people rather than the victims of their behavior and the idea that a, a serious society can't regulate public order is a very twisted and weird thing. And, and, and it's not what FDR believed, right? I mean, like classic, you know, American liberal types, New, De New Deal liberals, great society liberals, they didn't buy this stuff. Um, and so, like, you mentioned earlier that, you know, part of this is a sort of a religion. Why don't you talk about, like, what actually is the religion? Yeah, sure. And, yeah, it's so interesting, like, just on the the I mean part of like this I think you and I both we all struggle with kind of how to describe the folks on the street I mean there's a lot of people that describe them as zombies I didn't want to use that word I had some friends that made fun of me they were like god you're so I think Joe actually Joe Rogan was making fun of me because I was like I don't want to call them zombies because it's dehumanizing um but you know and, and and it's sort of like yeah it's like it's dehumanizing but also then well what about their victims and it's just such a mess i mean it helped me to go to the to netherlands and and shadow this really great social worker who's a character in the book and just see how they talked about it and they you know because one thing is people will say oh i've had people email me and go don't call them addicts you know you get the euphemism treadmill here you know it's on it's people experience experiencing houselessness you know, it's like, and you're, and this just the, but I think that after a while, like all of this, all of this language and all of this effort to not describe what's happening leads to deeply confusing accounts of what's going on on the street. So it's much easier to suggest that this is somehow the result of late capitalism. I spend a fair, several pages in the book just going through how much wealth has increased in the United States, you know, how much public housing and subsidized housing we have. You know, that these things are just simply not explained by immiseration theory, for example, that it's really explained by untreated mental illness and addiction and that you, if you treat mental illness and addiction, then you're not going to have this problem. So, yeah. So how did we go to where did this religion come from, this victim ideology? Well, this is a really interesting you know, question. And obviously, I'm obsessed with it because it's really the way that both Apocalypse Never and San Francisco end and, you know, it's, I'm a big believer. Um, I don't even think it's that controversial anymore that, uh, that most people, not everybody, there's some real atheists out there who are incredibly able to 
um, believe that at the end of their lives, they just become worm food and that's the end of the story and there's absolutely nothing. But most people struggle with that. Um, most people want to have some transcendent moral or spiritual purpose and that when traditional religions decline, new ones emerge in their wake. I think conservatives have been uh, much better on this question than liberals have because they tend to be more traditionally religious, uh, conservatives do. But there's incredible contributions from psychology on this, on these, on what's called these immortality projects that secular, that all people create for themselves, including atheists, by the way. The great book on this is The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker, who was a psychologist really coming out of the Freudian tradition, though he really, he really goes beyond that, where basically he argues that, very simply put, that all of us fear death, um, as we should, uh, that's a, we have an instinct to fear death, and that unlike other animals, we're aware, um, you know, we, we're aware of it. And so we, and because that's so distressing for us, we construct what he calls immortality projects. And so that might be a religion, but some way of convincing ourselves that some part of ourselves will live on forever. And so we have grandkids. That's a great way to do it. You write books, something that creates the illusion that we will live on forever. And I think one of those ways is the sense in which I'm going to save the world from horrible things. I'm going to rescue humanity. This is the Marvel superhero comic, but it's also Greta Thunberg climate activist or homeless advocate, I'm going to save these people against these evil things. And in some way, that's going to um, give me a feeling of immortality, of power, but also a feeling of belonging and purpose. So I think that that's just the main event in so many ways in these countries. And I think there's been a really productive conversation on the right about it. I think progressives have not wanted to, they've been in denial about the denial of death, so to speak, and about in denial about the rise of these secular religions. Though I will say, I think even that's starting to change. I mean, when I first argued, you know, almost a year and a half ago that when Apocalypse Never came out, that that apocalyptic environmentalism is a religion, you know, people are, you know, you're a right wing climate denier or whatever. But there's a fair number of people now since then that have sort of said, yeah, I can see it. I mean, when everybody I watch uh, British soccer, the Premier League, before every game, they take a knee. I mean, I'm I'm a anthropologist by training, a PhD dropout, but it's like you don't have to be an anthropologist to look at that and go, "That's a religious ritual," like that's just what that is. Um, but you know, so is saying a pledge of allegiance. You know, so is all these little. We have a lot of different spiritual and religious activities. So it's not even a. I'm not saying it. People misinterpret me when I say it as though I'm saying that because it's a religion, it's wrong. You know, I wrote a piece called "Why Wokeism Is a Religion," and I looked at we looked at. Um, you know, a whole bunch of things, race, uh, climate change, drugs, crime, homelessness, psychiatry, trans issues. It's not to say that it's a problem, but I think when you don't have any awareness that you are practicing a new religion and that you're in a spiritual religion, of course, this is the argument, by the way, of John McWhorter in his new book, Woke, Woke Racism. When you lack any awareness of it, it just makes you completely dogmatic and irrational. Whereas, you know, if you're sort of like, yeah, I'm a Christian, and what, here's what that means for me, but I also try to take a rational approach to public policy. I think it allows you some distance, whereas if you're just like, no, no, I don't have a religion. I just am trying to do what's true and right for, for poor victims. Those tend to be, in my experience, the most dogmatic progressives. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you're you're preaching to the choir. This is the 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 dogma thing and the political religion thing has been an obsession of mine for 20 years now. The you know the the chief difference between the right and the left, I would argue, and have argued at great length, has revolved around the concept of dogma, which is it's not that the left doesn't have dogma and the right does, it's that the the right the and I'm talking about here about the intellectuals and, and all that, but like the right recognizes that it has dogma and it tells you what its dogma is. And the left, starting with the pragmatic revolution in, you know, with William James and Tom, John Dewey, but also some Nietzsche and all that, um, thinks it lives in what William James called what a, a universe with the lid off and that, that, that they're not tied to any ideas. And that actually makes them far more dogmatic because they can't acknowledge their own biases. Like the great thing about conservatives is that we acknowledge what our biases are and we say, Hey, here's our bias. And the left constantly gets into this thing about saying, Oh, I'm just following the data, right? I'm just an empiricist. And similarly on the religion stuff, you know, I, I, I say, I got to read the death book. I have not read it. I mean, I've heard of it. Um, but the, uh, the denial of death book, but, you know, Paul Tillich, Tillich, um, you know, the theologian, he, he argued that religion addresses people's ultimate concerns. And I think that one of the things that you're getting at has less to do with, ha actually has to do with the fact that as, as Tillich noted that in the, in the middle ages, Death was so friggin' omnipresent in people's lives. You know, a huge percentage of kids died in childbirth or within one year of birth, and mothers died all the time in childbirth, and people died of diseases all the time, and and there were weird poxes and plagues, and and of course there were wars, and you know, and it was just bad time, lots of starvation. That worrying about what the afterlife and how to get into it was this issue of people's ultimate concern because they kind of knew they were going to die. And now that we've sort of eliminated a lot of those things and life expectancies have gone so much further, the new sort of woke stuff is more of like a crisis of meaning. It's like, where do I find my, my, my reason for existence kind of thing. And it becomes a way to leech onto, you know, these grand causes as, as the source of meaning. And it's still, but what's fascinating to me is that it still has so much Christianity in it. And, you know, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but like man's fallenness, man's kind of the problem, not the solution. Um, you know, Michael Crichton gave that speech about environmental religion, you know, starts in an Edenic past and then man's, get, you know, and, and Al Gore in, in his uh, Earth in the Balance book talks about how like basically Francis Bacon and the rise of science was man biting the apple and it's the curse of knowledge. And if we only had stayed in this sort of Rousseauian primitive place, um, and so I always find it fascinating. People can't like somehow it's dis discrediting for people like us to say, you know, this, this feels much more like a religion rather than their adherence to what is very religious seeming is not discrediting it at all. It's just sort of like just baseline decency and pragmatism, which is just not. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, and by the way, I mean, Nietzsche brilliantly predicted that scientism Right. The idea that that science could somehow be the source of ultimate values 
would become the dominant religion. That was his big fear. And I just absolutely see that certainly on the left um, and among liberal culture. That's that's for sure there. I mean, yeah, I see it. Um, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what I described at the end of Apocalypse Never with environment. I think the interesting thing is on this issue, there's there's also this like you, when you argue with people, when you find yourself in this argument with people about, for example, like we were just talking about, why are people on the street? Are they there because of addiction or are they there because they're down the luck? And this idea that housing is going to be the solution. What I find is that I, when you're ta- when you're arguing with those people, they are getting so worked up emotionally at anything that sort of challenges not just the analysis but also their solution. They have a you know there's this I mean the dominant ideology. I mean you might call it sort of the Matthew Iglesias ideology or Yimby ideology is that you just got to have tons and tons of apartments in cities, mass transit. Um, renewables, although now they're coming around, some people are coming around to nuclear, but certainly the picture is of just, you know, massive abundant housing and, um, as the solution to this, even though you're kind of like, look, like, (laughs) I mean, like the person that's on the street, like they had housing, they were living with their parents. There's actually their childhood bedroom is still available to them if they would quit (laughs) doing drugs, you know? Right, Right. So, so, you know, that's obviously wrong. And yet they, and so they, but people get so angry. And you realize you're like, it's like telling a Christian there's no heaven, you know, or that communism can't work, you know, or telling them, you're telling them that their utopia, that their utopian vision of transcendence, you know, is wrong or false or whatever. And that, I think, goes a long way to understanding why, when confronted with facts um, that, that, that disconfirm their their priors, so many progressives retreat into demonization of the person saying it, you know, like literally, I mean, literally you're a demonic for, for suggesting that, you know, we have a guy, I had a, had a, you know, we've, I describe this pattern, which I was myself uh, experienced where basically radical left homelessness advocates will accuse you of causing violence against people on the street for simply asking the question, why is it that there are so many progressives, why are there so many you know, people on the street in progressive cities? Why are so many on the street, people on the street addicted to hard drugs and mentally ill? And I was you know, trying to figure that out. And you, the only way to understand it is that these are people in the grip of a really profound religious fervor and completely um, you know, resistant to anything that would undermine their faith. So I, I want to, I, we're, we're a little over time but I want to um, quickly switch to the nuclear stuff. But I also, I want to just read you this quote because it's my favorite quote from Eric Vogelin who wrote a lot about political religion. Um, And it sort of fits what we were saying. Um, Here it is. It goes, when God is invisible behind the world, the contents of the world will become new gods. When the symbols of transcendent religiosity are banned, new symbols developed from the interworldly language of science to take their place. Like the Christian ecclesia, the innerworldly community has its apocalypse too, yet the new apocalyptics insist that the symbols they create are scientific judgments. And that's, that's perfect. 60, 70 years old. You know, you know, it's amazing. Yeah, that nails it. All right. So uh, if, if you have a few minutes, just because you know about the nuclear stuff and um, I cite your, your stuff on this all the time. You mentioned that 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 attitudes are changing a little bit on nuclear. What can you just give us to the extent you can? Like, what is the state of play on nuclear as a 
policy solution because my great peeve is I keep hearing about how climate change is an existential or extinction level threat. And yet the people who say that tend to say, but we can't use nuclear power, which is just very, very strange to me. Even in Don't Look Up, they were like, if climate change is like a comet heading towards Earth, let's use whatever tools we have and send nuclear bombs at it. And uh, But that analogy doesn't actually apply to our real politics, which is one of the reasons why I think Don't Look Up was so bad. But where, where, do th- where does this stand? I just saw recently that France is re-embracing nuclear, but Germany is a, in a fecal festival. I don't want to curse. So where, anyway, where do things stand right now? Yeah, I mean, things are going great for nuclear. I mean, we, we so many different signs of it. Uh, you know, it's um, first of all, um, attitudes are changing, and that's absolutely the most essential thing. So attitudes among Democrats have changed dramatically on nuclear. There was a poll done by very liberal polling, like nonprofit polling or for-profit, I, can't, I don't know which one, called Eco America, which found a huge increase of support among Democrats. I believe 20-point increase from something like I won't get the numbers exactly right. People can Google it, but it's basically somewhere around, you know, um, 35% to, you know, over 55%, you know, uh, support for nuclear among Democrats. And that's changed over the last just like three or four years. We saw, um, we you know, the world, America has been somewhat shielded from it, though, of course, not entirely. Our energy bills are going up significantly. Our natural gas prices have gone up significantly in the United States. We're shielded from it because we have so much fracking. But Europe is in a very serious energy crisis, um, one that is in part uh, created by Russia, but also by, um, you know, climate activists who have basically blocked and, and repressed the investments that need to go into expand oil and gas production, but also shut down nuclear power plants, as you pointed out. The, the the upside of that is that nuclear power is really back on the table. I was just in, I was in Europe twice during the fall, and I met with very senior political people in a bunch of different countries. Yeah, I mean, France, which gets 70% of its electricity from nuclear, is going back to nuclear. The president, Emmanuel Macron, has used the energy crisis to uh, win support for nuclear. The European Union just announced nuclear and natural gas would be considered part of its so-called sustainable uh, taxonomy, which is basically just a way of of certifying which technologies get uh, EU money. Uh, the new prime minister of Japan won a power struggle within his own party over nuclear and came to power in part around energy and nuclear and restarting the nuclear plants that they'd shut down a decade ago after the Fukushima accident. Yeah, we're still on the... We're still in a bad way in Germany and Belgium. Those are two countries where we still, Germany shut down three reactors last month. They're going to shut down, they're set to shut down three reactors at the end of this year unless we can stop them. Belgium is continuing to move forward with shutting down its nuclear reactors. You know, it's a testament to how strong anti-nuclear ideology and politics are that in the midst of this just historic energy crisis, arguably the worst in 50 years, they're still shutting down their nuclear plants I think it shows the extent to which nuclear is viewed as satanic in the new eco-religion of Europe, that they're still moving forward with it because they view those plants as some kind of an existential risk. But, you know, Britain has moved back towards nuclear, um, you know, and we're just seeing a change just everywhere in the world. I get reports of just people that were fence-sitting who are now open to doing nuclear. It's often, you know, the 
the kind of baby step forward is to do these small is to talk about doing smaller reactors or kind of different radically futuristic reactors. That's fine. Those aren't really going to happen. We're going to end up doing this, countries that do nuclear are going to continue to do the big old fashioned water cooled plants because those are the cheapest standardized reactors we have. But you do see just a watershed of change. You know, there's a Brazilian model who has taken over the effort to save our last plant in California. One of her best friends is Grimes, who is Elon Musk's baby mama. <laughs> and Elon Musk, uh, who has been who had been pretty paranoid in kind of a Gen X way around nuclear, he just tweeted his support for nuclear and has been giving some interviews talking about the importance of nuclear, you know, perhaps through the influence. So I was just at a conference, uh, a Peter Thiel uh, sponsored conference in Miami called Hereticon of various people that have been canceled um, uh, that are, you know, it's very more libertarian than liberal um, or conservative. But like nuclear for that crowd is like boring. You know, it's like not even it's not even like, you know, UFOs and aliens are on the cutting edge. Nuclear power is kind of like, yeah, obviously. You know, it's like so. I think the cha- the question has changed a bit. There's still some resistance on the right around the the cost of nuclear. Certainly, nuclear is more expensive in many ways than natural gas or or um, coal. But you know, there's just this other big thing which nobody likes to talk about, but which is super important, which is the fact that it's a dual use technology. If you have a robust nuclear energy program, then you have a pathway to making a bomb and. We have basically ceded Saudi Arabia's nuclear program to China. I think Saudi Arabia is a terrible country for a variety of reasons, for all the same reasons everybody else does. But that is traditionally the nation that we've used to balance Iran in the Middle East, that they've been our, um, you know, our bastard, so to speak. Um, and But we just basically, because we the United States has withdrawn from nuclear power plant building, we've basically ceded the, uh, the construction of uranium um, uh, enrichment and nuclear power plant construction to the Chinese. And it's like, you can't find a national security expert in Washington, D.C. on the left or the right who thinks that that's a good idea. So I do think nuclear is coming back in a big way. You see some of the more energetic and intelligent members of the Republican caucus, in particular, Dan Crenshaw, who I am um, uh, uh, have seen speak out much more strongly that the Republican caucus needs to be more than just all of the above which is kind of where they end up landing in part because they've got a lot of members from coal states. But even um, I'm just thrilled that Build Back Better died. Um, There was even, and I say that as somebody that had some, there was some stuff in Build Back Better that was going to help nuclear power plants that was good, but it was full of so much garbage for renewables. And Manchin did the right thing in killing it. He had a lot of different motivations, but he certainly, one of the things he mentioned is the fact that renewables are making electricity expensive everywhere that they're deployed. They're also increasing the risk of blackouts. Um, we've seen in just in part by over relying on them, imagining that, that these weather dependent technologies can somehow provide baseload power. They can't. So you saw Manchin has increasingly been speaking out for nuclear power, even though he doesn't have a nuclear plant in his district. So a guy that supposedly only cares about helping the coal industry has become this really big champion of nuclear. So I think things are going to change. I do. You know, we have even seen some some, you know, socialists, one of the founders of Jacobin. Um, you know, a few other kind of more socialist writers who have said, you know, why aren't we doing nuclear? You know, it's, it often requires a significant amount of government involvement. <laughs> so there, I think things are, are changing, um, both on the left and the right. 
around nuclear. So I do think we are headed towards uh, a nuclear re- renaissance. It's always with nuclear. It's always, you know, uh, one, two steps forward and one step back. It is a difficult technology. It is a complicated technology. It still arouses a lot of fears. But I mean, you know, gosh, I mean, millennials and, and Zoomers are just much less afraid of this technology than those of us that are Gen Xers or boomers. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for me, like the question, I don't love, I have no like special love for nuclear power. For me, it's sort of a, it's a just, a, it's a useful heuristic in having conversations with people about climate change. It's like, if you, if you believe all those things, then how can you take this off the table? Um, um, and, you know, I was a big defender of Yucca Mountain. I think it was a great facility. I went out, I wrote a piece about it. I toured the place. Um, I do worry about, you know, nuclear waste. I think nuclear waste issues are real issues and they need real solutions. And so when you say that they're just going to keep building the big old style nuclear power plants, um, what happened to like pebble bed reactors? What happened to all this talk about these, these next generation of sort of steady state things? I know cold fusion is always 20 years away, sort of like Brazil always <laughs> being 20 years away from being a first world country. But like um, uh, what, you know, why you would think we would have learned a lot about the science of this stuff to make better, you know, more powerful Steve Austin kind of nuclear reactors. Why haven't we? Well, we have. I mean, I always point out, you know, we have the jet planes that we have today are much better than the jet planes that we had after World War II in the 1950s. But they're still the basic energy tech. technology. Yeah, yeah. Okay, they're the same right. tech. Yeah, these are, you know, what um, Václav Smil calls um, prime movers. You know, these are um, kerosene-powered uh, tur- jet turbine technologies, uh, much more efficient, much better, all sorts of ways, but they're still the same thing. Same thing with nuclear. I grew up, I, the, the, the first nuclear plant I ever visited was this really cool general electric helium gas cooled nuclear power plant in Colorado, where I'm from, could not melt down. Okay. So these gas cooled reactors can't melt down cool plant what why did you know it's now it's now been shut down uh, several decades ago it's now a natural gas power plant why it was really complicated it was difficult to operate everybody the the new fashion is this uh, chemical salt cooled reactors that combine like a fluoride and beryllium or a, or you know various chemicals to basically provide a liquefied fuel so they would combine with the uranium or thorium and so they can't melt down because it's already a liquid. And you're like, God, oh, that sounds amazing. You know, you hear all the Thorian people that are like, they sound like fanatics. It's because they are fanatics. They're in the grip <laughs> of a religion. The religion is the world is coming to an end because of climate change. And I'm going to save it with my magic um, device. It's kind of a Marvel. It's a version of the Marvel superhero story. Well, you look into those technologies. I mean, I went to China. I interviewed engineers in China. I've interviewed. I know all the advanced nuclear companies. I know many of the CEOs. I interview them. I mean, these are really complicated technologies. I mean, the chemical, just to give you a sense of the chemical uh, coolant strategy requires some sort of chemical fabrication facility on the site of, of the plant or complicated because you have to, you know, because the, the fission process, you know, melting the chemicals and the fuel stay there happens on site. I was kind of like, so let me get this straight. You're going to sell environmentalists, not just on a nuclear power plant, but also a chemical reprocessing facility on the same site. 
you know, I think engineer, you know, these, these guys, so first of all, nuclear engineering, I mean, I do love nuclear in the sense that, you know, here it is this process of creating heat without any combustion. I mean, it's really cool. I mean, it's about as close as you can get to magic without being in the supernatural. Um, you know, but you, these, and these people are absolute geniuses. I mean, no question about it. I mean, these nuclear engineers who are doing these advanced designs. They're incredible geniuses. The problem is the people who have to build the plants, operate the plants and regulate the plants can't be geniuses. We don't have enough geniuses. The plants have to be simpler to run. And so what you look for and the big, and the French have done, there's these two French economists that wrote really the only paper anybody needs to read on the economics of nuclear and they just find what you would not be shocked to find, which is that highly standardized designs built by the same dudes. Like in Korea, I interviewed these guys who are in their early 60s and they've been building nuclear plants since their mid-20s. So they've been working together for like 25 years. They told me they were building nuclear power plants in Korea until the program got all messed up by the new president, the anti-nuclear president. They were building nuclear plants faster than coal plants in Korea. So there's nothing like you know, but it's it's complicated. Like the welding that's required to 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 fit together pipes in nuclear plants has to be this different kind of welding than the welding that the fracking guys use. So they brought all these fracking welders to Georgia to build these nuclear plants, and the NRC, the regulators, were there, and they were like, "These aren't nuclear grade welds." And the fracking guys were like, "F you! I'm the best goddamn welder in Louisiana," and it was like not good enough, and so. You have to get these welders that have been doing. So it's really, it's really about repetition, standardization, and economies of scale. Um, the the small nuclear thing always appeals because it sounds like um, mass production. The problem with it is that we already factory produce and mass produce the components of big plants, steam generators, turbines. Um, uh, the reactor vessels. These are all things that already can be produced in factories and are in places like Russia where they're producing many more of them. The problem with the small is that almost always you can't reduce the size of the workforce commensurate to reducing the size of the reactor. So you're just massively reducing the amount of electricity you have to sell. Whereas I went to Korea, they took a 1,000 megawatt reactor that the United States had developed and exists in, uh, I mean, my favorite, one of my favorite nuclear plants is in Arizona. It's in the desert. They, use, they recycle Phoenix's wastewater. Um, beautiful plant. The Koreans took that very similar design and they increased the size of the reactor to 1,400 megawatts from 1,000 megawatts with just a tiny increase in workforce. You've just basically reduced the price by 40% by increasing the output by 40%. So nuclear wants to be boring it wants to be standardized. It wants to be conventional. Um, the The other big issue is that the financing has to be cheap because it takes a long time to build them. So every time, I mean, this is construction projects in general um, apply to nuclear projects. Um, you want either public financing or for people that are uncomfortable with that, um, you can have like pension funds. So the British are using like pension funds, which is, you know, where the, the, and there's just guarantees that this thing will be built. So there's like no risk for investors that the plant's not going to be built. The cost of capital is very low. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what I want just to be transparent about it, I think it, it challenges some conventional orthodoxies on the right. Um, it doesn't have the same, I can't use the same, you know, neoliberal language or neoclassical language that often is used on these things. 
um, you know, um, that actually then tends to increase support on the left, as you might imagine. Um, but, you know, what I tend to find is, you know, the argument that works, including with a guy like Dan Crenshaw, who's, of course, famously a Navy SEAL and is very tied to the military industrial complex, is that, you know, if you want, if you want the United States to continue to have a hand in other countries' nuclear programs, and by nuclear, I mean nuclear energy plus whatever else might come along, then you've got to have a nuclear building program at home because the main criteria that countries use to decide whether to hire the Russians or the Chinese or the Americans or the French or the Koreans is whether they have experience building, operating, and regulating nuclear plants in their home country. And so if the United States wants to get the Saudi job to build nuclear you know, plants or uranium enrichment, we have to be building plants at home. And we have this wonderful design. It's called the AP-1000. We've got two reactors that are just being finished in Georgia. The most insane thing, the thing that really just upsets me almost more than anything around nuclear is that you have these guys who, who blood, sweat, and tears over the last decade and a half built these two beautiful reactors in Georgia, and now these the workforce is to the wind. Um, that workforce should have kept going, building two new reactors in South Carolina, two new reactors in other states, around, you know, two new reactors in West Virginia, because those that band, you know, that band of brothers that built those nuclear plants that the the tacit knowledge the stuff that's not written down the stuff that's not in the blueprints of the designs is it's just impossible to reconstruct without the experience of building plants so anyway that's a long version of why i think um the existing nuclear we have in terms of the waste you know i i i hear people talk about why you need to bury the waste i've never understood that i mean the waste is fine above ground it, nothing happens to it it can't explode the risk is that maybe a canister would fall on somebody, but it never has. It never will. There's no. I think the only reason to put it underground is as a religious ritual, returning um, returning the fuel, the used fuel rods to the underworld. But there's no terror. There's. I mean, I'll say no. There's like next to zero terrorist risk. I mean, you'd have to reprocess the fuel rods. So I just kind of go. I don't know why everybody wanted to bury them. It struck me as a huge boondoggle. Um, to bury them. I think they're fine. As an environmentalist, I think that if you can have the waste contained at the site of production, bam, you're doing great. There's no chance of running out of space. Yucca Mountain's dead anyway, and it's not going to happen. And so I'm always like, lad, just just keep um, those nuclear plant sites we have. There's about 60 nuclear power plant sites. There's about, I think, 99 or 98 reactors, since often plants have more than one reactor. Those power plant sites are incredibly, those are the basis for radical decarbonization of your energy sector because you can just add more reactors to existing plant sites and scale up nuclear in the lowest cost way. You don't have to go and deal with all the NIMBY concerns about siting a new area for a new nuclear plant. So for me, I go, the nuclear plants we have are jewels. These reactors are, are precious jewels. You shut one down. I mean, right now, New England is experiencing is at risk of blackouts because it doesn't have enough reliable electricity. And also the, the anti-nuclear climate activists have shut down the natural gas power lines, power uh, pipelines that were supposed to bring gas from Pennsylvania uh, to the Northeast. And so, you know, if you had these nuclear plants operating, we'd be in a much different situation in California, New England, Texas, other parts of the country that have experienced reliability problems. Um, but they're also the basis of your concern about climate change to get to 100% zero carbon electricity and then 
really double that or increase it somewhere between 50 and 100 percent to basically completely decarbonize the transportation sector, either with electric cars or with fuel cell cars. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I mean, this was great and I really appreciate it. And you, you, you've indulged me and I, I learned a bunch of stuff. I do think it is so insane to. I mean, talk about putting the cart before the horse, um, which, you know, the horse is the energy source. <laughs> um, this radical leap towards subsidizing and encouraging the electrification of transportation in this country without actually having a non-carbon source of electricity to fill up the batteries, a reliable one in place first, just strikes me as biz a bizarre sort of sequencing screw up. You know, I mean, like, you know, at least it used to be the case that if you drove an electric car in, say, Ohio, you were driving a coal-powered car, you know, just the process was one step removed. And and again, I just, like, on the waste thing, I'll, let me just say that, like, I, I'd have to go back and look, but I took a lot of people at their word about the shoddy condition of some of the, the storage facilities around the country. Um, but what I thought was sort of an anti-science thing about the opposition to Yucca Mountain was the argument by the federal government that unless you could guarantee there would be no radiation um, for 10,000 years, um, uh, that you couldn't have it. You know, you like the idea that in 500 years, we couldn't solve all of these problems or like, you know, turn nuclear waste into you know cotton candy is just sort of ridiculous to me you know have a have a bet on humanity that in 10,000 years nuclear waste will not be a major problem um and you know and obama rejected the scientific consensus that yucca mountain was okay uh because it was a sop to harry reed um and really nothing more than that and so i i find the lectures about sound science from the people who are against nuclear against things like Yucca Mountain, you know, all that kind of stuff, incredibly tedious. But but here's the here's the thing, oh, Jenna, I'll just add on this. I know we have to wrap up. But I mean, for me, I go, the proof that this is a religious debate around Yucca Mountain and nuclear waste is like, what are we doing worrying about people 10,000 years from now? Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I mean, this entirely. is bizarre. Like what? Like, like, I mean, first of all, like, we can't figure out what's going to be going on 10 years from now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we think, what do we think? My grandfather should have been worried about climate change in the early 20th century. I mean, you deal with the problems you have now. Um, people are always, there's this weird thing. People always go, anti-nuclear people go, we have to put up these signs uh, um, to warn future humans that nuclear waste is buried here. And I'm always like, wait, like, are future humans going to not know how to read English? Like, like what, who are these future humans? Like, like, I mean, it's like bizarre. It's, it's, or, or future people that might come in. It's like, well, they might have a lot of other things, other toxic problems to worry about than some nuclear fuel rods. Um, or it might have other things to, I mean, it, it, it's so, it's almost surreal, the conversation where that's where I was like, this is just cannot be about what people claim it's about. I'm with you entirely on this one. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for staying along. Um, the the new the most recent book is san francisco Fran, san francisco and the one prior was is apocalypse never i was going to say apocalypse nowish but that's actually an episode of the tv show angel um thank you so much for doing this and i hope to have you back 
Yeah, thanks for having me, Jenna. Great to great to speak with you. Okay, so Michael has left the uh, met, left the studio. Uh, I I'm really glad I got a chance to ask him about the nuclear stuff because that was that was a very useful debrief on the state of play of things. Um, and uh, I was just joking with 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 Caleb and Guy um, a second ago. I was like, that dude's just a neocon. Um, and I, I don't, I mean, I don't mean that as a criticism, but it's, you know, it's, I, I, I come from the school of thought that doesn't think of neoconservatism as primarily or even necessarily about foreign policy. It's about, um, a process of disillusionment with sort of utopian schemes and, and a greater appreciation for the law of unintended consequences and the, um, and the sort of homes, you know, the sort of time-honored truths that conservatives recognized and uh and applying that stuff towards even liberal ends that's fine um and he just feels like he's on that journey but i can see why um uh, he's reluctant to sort of get too deep in the weeds on that conversation i thought it was great um i really do recommend the book um, if you, if you tweet about how you got the book because of the podcast, um, we will, um, do some retweeting, um, cause we'd like to help promote books that we think are worth getting. And, um, other than that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Podcast.